y'all. This is John Lawrence, the producer of Anesthesia Guidebook, and this is the first podcast of the new year. Welcome to 2021. We made it. As the COVID-19 vaccines from Pfizer and Moderna roll out across the United States, I'm hoping, like many of you are, for a brighter year in 2021. However, as the virus continues to ravage our communities and overrun our hospitals, I wish you the best and encourage all of you to keep up the good fight with social distancing, masking, and other efforts to limit the spread and protect yourselves. 2020 was an absolutely crazy year with political and social tensions flaring and the virus wrecking untold suffering on individuals and families around the globe and causing substantial disruption to our personal and professional lives. As the pandemic rolls on, it can be incredibly exhausting, frustrating, and disheartening. I encourage you to find your recharge moments and connect with loved ones safely, whether in person with your immediate family or by digital meetups with extended family and friends. We will keep going. We will get through this. The show goes on. And with that, let me introduce you to this first episode of 2021 and my guest, Jenny Lee. Miss Lee is finishing up her doctorate of nursing practice at the University at Buffalo right now, and her doctoral work focused on the use of ondansetron to prevent spinal-induced hypotension in elective C-sections, which is what we're going to talk about today. Miss Lee earned her Bachelor of Science in Psychology from University of California, Davis, in 2013, and went back to school for a second bachelor's in nursing at the University of Rochester. She worked in the cardiovascular ICU at Strong Memorial Hospital in Rochester, New York for two years before returning to complete her doctorate in anesthesia at the University at Buffalo. She's expected to graduate in May of 2021. I reached out to Ms. Lee after participating in her national survey and educational session on the topic earlier this fall. In this podcast, we will unpack both the science and efficacy of using ondansetron to prevent spinal-induced hypotension in elective C-sections as well as how she structured her educational project and survey on the topic. I've used ondansetron to prevent spinal-induced hypotension in my own practice for the last couple of years, and I'm so grateful for Ms. Lee joining me on the podcast to promote this evidence-based practice. Links to research on the topic are in the show notes of this episode, and with that, let's get to the show. Well, Jenny Lee, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. I'm so stoked to talk to you this evening. John, thank you so much for having me. Um, I love your podcast, and so I'm just super excited to be a part of this. Oh, that's awesome. I can't wait. Uh, So tell me a little bit about what got you interested in doing this literature search on on Dantantron and preventing spinal-induced hypotension. Yeah, so really it was my clinical experiences that got me interested in this topic. Um, It was when I was only a few months into my first clinical year, And I was rotating at a site that did a lot of spinal anesthesia for both OB and other surgeries in the OR, um, like ortho mainly. Um, But one day I was working with a CRNA preceptor. And at that point, I had really only done a few spinals before, but we rolled in with the patient. And as I was getting the patient situated on the table, my CRNA handed me a syringe with Zofran drawn up and said, here, let's give this. And in my head, I was thinking, well, maybe this patient had, um, you know, history of P1B, even though they didn't have any risk factors that I knew of. We weren't doing general anesthesia. Um, but then she says it'll help with the hypotension. And I remember thinking, hmm, I never heard of that, but that's interesting. And of course I gave it just, you know, fully trusting my preceptor. And, and then I was thinking also just maybe I never heard of it because I was still so new to anesthesia in general. 
Um, but afterwards I asked her about it and she told me, yeah, I don't think a lot of people here do it. Um, but there's actually a bunch of studies on it. And so later I did some searching on my own and kind of just went down this rabbit hole of a bunch of studies and articles and, and just thought it was pretty interesting. Um, yeah. It seems like such a small like intervention that is, you know, easy and simple to do, but can have some great effects. Um, and so for the following months I did, whenever I did spinals, especially in OB, I would ask, um, kind of just like in a casual discussion, ask my CRNAs or anesthesiologists that I was working with about this. And to my surprise, many providers um, did not utilize this and many weren't even really aware of the specific use um, of Zofran. So that's pretty much what started my interest in the topic and kind of just snowballed into becoming my DNP project. Yeah, well, I think that's a it's a very typical story, I think, uh, what you talked about. And it's also what's going to make this be a great topic for a podcast. I'm so excited to get this info out. When I saw your survey that came through for CRNAs nationally, I said, oh, that's someone that's going to know a lot about this topic. It's something that was part of my practice prior to seeing your survey. So I knew I wanted to reach out to you and get you on the podcast to talk about this. I'm, I'm so grateful and glad that the day has finally come. So will you give us a little bit of an, of an overview of how you designed your total project? So we're doing this podcast, which is part of the dissemination of your project, but you've had this huge effort that's gone underway as part of your doctoral program. So give us a little bit of a rundown on what you did that we're going to talk about today. Yeah, sure. So overall, I did a, a sort of a pre-test, post-test study design with an educational intervention. So it consisted of a pre-intervention survey, an evidence-based educational presentation for CRNAs about the use of pre-procedural and dance tron for patients receiving spinal anesthesia for elective C-sections, and a post-intervention one-month follow-up survey. So the surveys assess the provider's familiarity with the topic, um, their utilization of prophylactic indiancitron, and other current practices utilized for spinal hypotension as well, and a barriers assessment was part of it too. Um, so overall, the specific aims of my project were to support the evidence-based education among CRNAs regarding this use of pre-spinal and dance-tron, identify barriers to practice change or implementation, as well as evaluate for provider-reported efficacy of the prophylactic and dance-tron in reducing the incidences of hypotension, nausea, vomiting, and vasopressor requirements. So you did this pre-survey, and then mm -hmm. tell us a little bit about the educational intervention. So you created something like a pre-recorded PowerPoint presentation. Is that right? Yeah. So I made an educational video intervention. It was um, like a PowerPoint video that I had embedded at the end of the pre-intervention survey. So that was sort of the way I delivered that intervention for participants. And the whole study was conducted online. So with a national sample of CRNA participants. That's awesome. Um, so you had this pre this pre intervention survey because I know other other SRNAs out there may be listening to this and be like, okay, this is a great study design. So mm -hmm. pre interventional survey went out to a national pool of CRNAs, and then at the end of that survey, you had a link to this pre recorded educational intervention. Then you came back a month later, so they were able to do the survey, then listen to the educational piece, then go out and practice for a little bit, and then you captured them a month later. Yeah, exactly. So my whole intention was to do that one-month follow-up survey to give CRDs that one-month period to either increase or to begin utilization of that pre-procedural and dance trend. And 
kind of try it out in their own practice and see how they liked it, see how it worked, and then kind of follow up and see if they noticed any efficacy of it and um, if there were any barriers also to implementing it in their own practice. Okay, cool. So we're going to keep people on the hook and I want to come back and talk about what you found in your research, but let's jump right in and talk more about this topic specifically how this is clinically impactful. So will you tell us a little bit about how Ondansetron works and why is it effective in preventing spinal-induced hypotension? Sure. So Ondansetron, we all know it as an anti-emetic, of course. Um, It's a serotonin receptor antagonist. What I think a lot of people don't fully understand is the specific mechanism of action in attenuating spinal-induced hypotension and bradycardia. And the way it works is it inhibits the bezel Gerich reflex. So it does this via blockade of the serotonin receptors located on the sensory vagal nerve endings in the heart that are usually triggered when the heart is empty. And so as a reminder, the bezel Gerich reflex, it's a cardiac inhibitor reflex that produces that bradycardia and hypotension. So with Andansetron, it blocks this reflex and there is no transmission of that vagal effect to the brain. So it results in less parasympathetic outflow. So a decreased chance of that bradycardia, vasodilation, nausea, vomiting. So really it should help maintain the hemodynamic stability following a subarachnoid block and the sympathectomy that occurs with it. That's super interesting. So I want to ask you something. It's a little bit off topic, but I think this is fascinating, uh, mechanism of action for Zofran in preventing spinal-induced hypotension. In your reading, did you come across anything about what's been dubbed AOK therapy for amniotic fluid embolism, where ondansetron is similarly used to interrupt that vagal-mediated reflex during amniotic fluid embolism? Yeah, sure. And I think I don't fully remember it exactly, but I think it it really, really just has to do with the serotonin receptors as well in the intracardiac, like the chambers. Right, right. It does. It's a similar mm-hmm. pathway. Right. So so yeah, these these yeah. two things are kind of linked in terms of clinical practice and, and they happen to both be obviously experienced in the obstetric world. So I thought that was kind of an interesting aside. But mm-hmm. um, let's talk a little bit more about what you found with this specific patient population in terms of your literature search. So what kind of research is out there on this topic? Yeah, sure. So first, I kind of want to preface it with... Um, the emphasis that in the literature, they do acknowledge that identifying the most effective treatment strategy to prevent spinal-induced hypotension and achieving complete hemodynamic stability during spinal anesthesia for C-sections, it does remain a challenge in OB anesthesia. And I know people may have their differing opinions about what they feel is most effective and beneficial based on their own clinical judgment and with what they've seen in their own experiences and practice. And there's a number of measures for the prevention and treatment of spinal hypotension used in clinical practice. And there's just so much variation among providers and facilities. So yes, this reviews have really found that there's no single intervention among the various things we do that reliably prevent hypotension during spinal anesthesia for C-sections. So recently, Andansetron has been popular in the literature as a promising agent to reduce spinal-induced hypotension and bradycardia. And there's been a ton of studies that have shown that prophylactic administration of IV andansetron before the spinal anesthesia does attenuate that spinal-induced side effects, especially like hypotension, bradycardia, the nausea, vomiting. 
So it's been shown to be a safe and effective method in reducing that incidence of spinal hypotension. And most studies say it's when administered five minutes prior to the spinal puncture. That's interesting. And so it's helpful for reducing like, you know, different studies broke it out in different ways in terms of uh, looking at mean arterial pressure, following spinal administration. Other studies measured this in terms of Zofran's administration or Ondansetron's administration on reducing the amount of vasopressors required or reducing a pregnant patient's experience of nausea and vomiting, which is, of course, related to the experience of hypotension. And then there were also um, interesting findings in terms of perfusion related to hypotension to the fetus, uh, resulting in lower fetal or infant acidosis and improved APGAR scores post-birth. So will you talk a little bit about those findings? Sure. So regarding the vasopressor requirement, the studies, so a lot of these randomized controlled trial studies, they did evaluate the hemodynamic measurements as the primary outcomes. And then as secondary outcomes looked at the vasopressor requirements, patient incidences of nausea, vomiting, and the neonatal parameters. So with the vasopressor requirements, overall, they have found that Undanstron, when administered prespinal, does significantly reduce the amount of vasopressors required to treat hypotension in patients undergoing C-sections. So patients, you know, required less intraoperative consumption of vasopressors, as well as fewer mean doses required to treat hypotension. And people might think like, why does this even really matter? Um, you know, vasopressors used to treat maternal hypotension. Can Studies have shown they can have a negative effect on the neonate's acid-base status. And certain ones, you know, have a higher contribution to fetal acidosis. And although current evidence-based practice actually does support prophylactic administration and treatment of hypotension with vasopressors, especially just, you know, phenylephrine and ephedrine. I think the research is still always evolving to find safer and effective alternatives to prevent and treat the hypotension. Right. It's interesting to think about, you know, absolute hypotension is not good for fetal perfusion. So of course, if you have vasopressors available, perhaps we should use them to support the mothers or uh, the individual's uh, mean arterial pressure. But how you get to that output matters right? Mm -hmm. How you get to an adequate mean arterial pressure matters. And by using vasopressors to get there, it may result in perfusion issues to the fetus while still in utero, uh, mm -hmm. resulting in increased acidosis and perhaps even lower APGAR scores. Yeah, yeah. So the studies actually, uh, there were only a few that actually looked at the neonatal parameters, but they did find that the babies that were born in to mothers who did receive the prespinal and dance tron had higher APGAR scores initially after birth within five minutes, it sort of evened out. So right. um, I guess some, some people might argue it's negligible, but neonates were also shown to be less acidotic when they, you know, check their blood gas levels. So overall, I think it still is helpful in improving the metabolic and vital parameters of newborns and just, you know, contributing to being as safe as possible with them. Um, yeah. Yep. Yeah. And then it's, it also supports just a pleasant experience, it seems like, by reducing sure. nausea and vomiting. And as mm -hmm. you know, most anesthesia groups understand, and most hospitals understand, if you have pregnant individuals who are satisfied with their birthing experience, then that bodes well for the hospital. So if we can prevent mm -hmm. nausea vomiting in C-sections, that's a good thing. Yeah, yeah. So actually, um, what I had noted in my paper was that 
Um, and I think we're all aware that nausea and vomiting is consistently a strong indicator um, of patient satisfaction in the perioperative period. And then specifically with parturients, they found that vomiting was actually a primary concern with them. Mm, yeah, so, of yeah, course. we can do everything we can to kind of mitigate um, these risks. I think that's what we should do as anesthesia providers. Yeah, absolutely. So it's sounding like we've got a pretty low-risk cost-effective intervention available to us with a strong literature basis to support using ondansetron pre-spinals and parturients. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, let's shift back and talk a little bit more about your study on this educational intervention. So you did this pre-study, the pre-recorded educational presentation, and then a post-intervention survey on uh, CRNAs who are practicing in obstetrics and their use of ondansetron. What did you find? So overall, my project findings did reveal an increase in provider knowledge and utilization of this practice. After receiving the educational intervention, there were some significant reductions in certain barriers to practice implementation in the post-intervention group as well. And provider reported efficacy of prespinal and dancetron revealed that CRNAs did note a um, reduction in incidences of hypotension, nausea, vomiting, as well as vasopressor requirements. So some specific findings I thought were interesting was in the follow-up survey, a majority, um, actually 97% of CRNA participants reported that they would possibly, likely, or very likely increase or maintain use of pre-procedural and dancetron as part of their routine practice, actually. How many participants did you have in your study? So in the end, my total um, sample size for the pre-intervention survey part was 109. But for my post-intervention sample, I had a total of 80 CRNAs that actually followed up. <laughs> oh, interesting. And were you able to yeah. correlate? Like, were they matched in terms of? They were. Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. So you're yeah. able to at least identify uh, whether or not the same CRNAs were coming back and, and answering the survey. Correct. Yeah. And actually what I found was interesting was um, in my post-intervention, I, it seems like the people who had followed up were more of the CRNAs who already did implement this in their oh, practice. Interesting. Yeah. yeah <laughs> so yeah. maybe they were just, you know, more excited or eager about it. Mo- motivated to support research that supports the findings and utilization of the, of the medication. Makes sense. Uh, how has this whole project impacted your own anesthesia practice? I think so now just being a senior student and having more experience, I'll be more confident in discussing it with preceptors and saying like, Hey, this is what the literature supports. Like, will you let me try this? So. Yeah. I think that's, you know, knowledge is power in those kinds of conversations. And of course, Mm -hmm. you know, emotional intelligence goes a long way into being able to have those conversations, but having a literature base to back up what you're talking about with clinical preceptors and then ultimately, you know, colleagues, surgeons, uh, patients can be super empowering for shaping your practice uh, towards what the evidence actually says. It's interesting knowing that we were doing this podcast, knowing that you were out there doing this as part of your doctoral project. I began to talk more about it with my own colleagues and from physicians to CRNAs who work in OB anesthesia. It was, it was kind of a bell curve. You know, I, I think even some of the more experienced providers in OB were not aware of this, you know, which I thought was kind of interesting that 
it's it's a relatively, like we've said, a relatively safe, low-cost, effective intervention that has great outcomes. And so why not implement this into our routine practice? And I have right. heard of, of, new, of several people in, in groups who have protocolized this into their, their approach to, to placing spinals in OB. Yeah, so there were a couple um, CRNAs who responded that they did have it in, um, like as part of a protocol, but it was only really a few And actually, so what I found in my study was that the lack of clear facility guidelines for managing spinal-induced hypotension was actually found to be the strongest barrier for practice change or implementation. So about like 75% of the CRNAs had reported that their facility currently did not have a protocol or algorithm in place for the prevention or management of it. And about 50% agreed that it was a major barrier for them to implement the practice. That's interesting. What other Mm -hmm. kinds of barriers did you find? So the barriers commonly reported by the CRNA participants included, of course, you know, the lack of awareness or knowledge of this practice was a big one. A lot of people mentioned needing to see more evidence-based research. And there were a few who did report that a common barrier was the attending physician anesthesiologist resistance to, you know, the intervention or reluctance in doing certain interventions that they weren't aware of or weren't comfortable utilizing. <laughs> right. Right. I, going back to the protocol thing, it's, it's really interesting. I think the more that I have kind of, um, you know, seen over time, different protocols get implemented in different realms of anesthesia practice at our facility. It seems like elective C-sections in the OB world are ripe for being able to facilitate some sort of protocolized approach to optimizing patient care. We want these people to have a good experience. And by and large, it's a pretty homogenous group of individuals who are having one of the more common surgical procedures in the United States. Yeah, actually, one of my recommendations um, after, you know, completing this project was for CRNAs to, you know, go to their facilities and or anesthesia departments and really advocate for developing some sort of evidence-based guideline or protocol for managing spinal hypotension. Oh, that's or great. Or update an existing one if if they have one in place already. But Right, yeah. right. Is there anything that surprised you or frustrated you along the way in doing this project? Yeah. So I think what surprised me most actually was the number of CRNAs who responded that they already frequently or always administered pre-spinal and dance with their C-sections. When I assessed it on the pre-intervention survey, it was a little over half of the participants that said they already utilized it. And a majority of that percentage actually said they do it for every single case. Oh, great. Um, And so I thought that was interesting just because the sites that I've done spinals and OB at, um, I, I didn't really see it much and people weren't quite familiar with it. So I had originally thought that it was like this huge clinical gap across the board. <laughs> right, right. Well, I think it's fascinating when you look at these kinds of issues, which again, I'm super motivated to get this out there as a podcast, but I think with any kind of evidence, there's going to be a bell curve of individuals who, you know, you've got people who are early implementers that would say, well, of course, like, yeah, it's common sense, right? It's low cost effective. It's relatively safe, have huge benefits from this. Why would we not? Of course, like, of course we're doing this. Why are you even doing a project on that? Of course we're doing this. 
But then there's probably a, a group of people who are, like you said, I don't know, might need to see some more information on that. And then there are like the laggards who are like, I'm not changing my practice. I manage hypotension with vasopressors. Why would I need to do anything different? And they may mm-hmm. drag their feet. They may not be aware. So I think all of those experiences can be surprising. You know, it can be surprising to hear some people have something be so routine in their practice. And and that's amazing. But then for everyone else out there who is looking for, you know, evidence to stand on, is looking for a reason to change their practice, um, it's beneficial to do projects like yours that seek to educate anesthesia providers. I think it's super helpful. So I'm stoked that you've been doing this the last uh, right. year or so. Yeah. So, so actually, John, I wanted to ask you this, um, and I'm not sure if this is a good spot to ask, but um, seeing how you were very eager to make a podcast on this topic, I was assuming you either were interested in this practice or already frequently use this intervention um, of in- administering pre-spinal and dance chan. So would you mind telling us more about like your experience um, with this in your own clinical practice? Like, do you use it often? What made you start? And what do you think of its efficacy? Yeah, absolutely. So I am one of the OB CRNAs. We have a, a small group of CRNAs out of about almost close to 100 CRNAs at our facility that do OB. And it has become a part of my routine approach to spinals. And I do try to give on Dantatron five minutes prior to administering the spinal. So usually that's in pre-op just before the patient rolls back to the operating room. Sometimes it's it's as soon as they hit the OR door that I'll give on Dantatron. And then I go to position the patient, get the monitors on, and then, of course, prep and drape the patient and get the spinal in. So usually I've got five minutes in there, even if they just walked in the door of the OR um, prior to giving them their spinal. And then, uh, so it's not part of our protocol. Um, it's something that I do. It's something that a handful of the other anesthesia providers do. I've gotten similar pushback from from folks that are uh, resistant to change, that don't utilize this in their own practice, whether it's CRNAs or physician anesthesiologists. But it, yeah, it, it's so it's not part of our protocol, but it's something that I've been doing. And I've, I mean, you know, I've not done a detailed analysis of data, but it seems it seems to work pretty good. You know, if I forget to do it on a particular case because it's not part of some protocol, I wonder when I seem to have increased hypotension during that case, hey, is this is this because I didn't give Zofran prior to the spinal? Um, mm-hmm. Administering a phenylephrine infusion is part of our protocol, so every patient gets that with spinals. And it's interesting just knowing that it's kind of drilled in, like, you know, we're doing a, we're doing a C-section, so I'm going to set up the phenylephrine infusion. You know, so I'm still I'm still working on you know making sure that 100% of the patients get this, and I even try to do it with with kind of our urgent uh, C sections that are still done under spinal. I think it's helpful. So even when there's mm-hmm. a bit of a rush uh, to the C section, I think it can still be important. Sure, awesome. Thanks for sharing. Um, actually, to go off on that a little bit, um, so I'm sure for you because it's just part of your flow because you almost always utilize it. Um, how did you get to that point though? Like what helped you remember to do it when you first started incorporating it into your practice? And I'm asking this because I actually had quite a few CRNAs respond that they would have liked to or would try it, but often they just forget. So is there 
Um, do you have any suggestions for like mental triggers or reminders, like visual cues to recommend to other CRNAs? Yeah, it's a great question. So even though I'm one of our OB CRNAs, we rotate up there with, with a large enough group. And then we also have a physician residency program that works many of our shifts in OB. So I'm probably in the OB suites, you know, once or twice a month, uh, even though I'm part of a closed group of CRNAs that do those cases. So uh, on my phone, I've got checklists for our approach to spinals, our typical dosing, the whole flow, and every other bit of information that would be significant to know and remember in the OB world. So epidural, anatomy, physiology, pharmacology, all of that kind of stuff. So, uh, so just simply adding it in to like the C-section checklist in my own notes that, Hey, this is a part of it. I think primarily just being motivated to make positive change in your practice. It's how you do anything, you know, it's how Mm -hmm. you optimize the patient better for pre-oxygenation or include apneic oxygenation as part of your plan for an anticipated difficult airway. It's that constant motivation to, always improve and always get better and not just be stagnant in your practice. And so you find ways, whether it's, you know, uh, in the morning when you check your machine off and you, you know, we have automated PIXIS for all of our medications. So uh, we've got a little space for patient medications that we would draw up or get ready. So just pulling the Zofran out of its little cubby and dropping it in that space is your reminder to say, when you bring that nine o'clock C-section in, there's your ondansetron for the case. So there's all different kinds of um, reminders that you can do, but I think primarily it's the motivation to change and then just really sinking your teeth in it. And we'll put links to the, to the studies that you um, pulled together for your DMP project into the show notes of the podcast. But when people, I think when they see the data, when they see how clear the studies are and how supportive they are of the practice change, I think that ultimately knowing that there's a really strong evidence base behind a change um, Mm -hmm. can really help people remember to make those changes in their own practice. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question though. Um, So we've talked a lot about on Dantatron with preventing spinal-induced hypotension and parturients. We talked about your project and kind of how you approached uh, the, the study and the educational intervention. If we can shift gears as we close out here, you're a DMP student who's finishing up what I would say was a very well-done project, having read your paper. What advice would you give for other DMP SRNAs out there who are looking at putting together projects or looking at navigating something like a national-based survey and educational intervention. Was was there anything along the way that really helped you or would you encourage uh, SRNAs to do something similar or or not do something like this at all? (laughs) No, um, it was a great experience. (laughs) Um, I think my biggest advice for just these projects in general is just to choose something you're really interested in or passionate about, especially with the amount of work that goes into these projects. At least having a topic you somewhat care about, it definitely helps you maintain your sanity throughout the process. And specifically for the practice-based educational interventions, I'd say it really just depends on what your topic is um, and what your goals are with the project and what reach you want it to have. For instance, doing a national sample like I did can provide you with a ton of information of practices among a huge variety of settings and such. And you have that potential for reaching a wide audience. But depending on what your intervention is, you might not necessarily need that wide reach. If you have a local site that has that clinical gap that you know about and you really want to emphasize your practice and that potential change for better practice in a more concentrated sample, 
Yeah, that's good advice. That's good advice. Well, Jenny, is there anything else that you'd like to say that we haven't covered thus far in terms of on Dancitron or um, how your project came together? Yeah. So actually just one thing I did want to mention, because we talked about um, the cost effectiveness of using pre-spinal and Dancitron a few times, but didn't really go into it. These values are from one article and I'm sure the cost can you know, vary across different regions and facilities. But what I found was one four milligram vial of undansetron costs $1.96. And it's frequently already used during C-sections to prevent or treat nausea and vomiting. So there's no additional cost to using it. Um, the only really practice change is the timing of the administration. So it's cost effective as it also reduces the excessive amounts of crystalloid or colloid solutions and vasopressors administered. And just for comparison, a phenylephrine prefilled syringe costs about $5. Ephedrine prefilled syringe costs about $13. A one liter bag of plasmalite costs about $25. And often at least two bags are used in a C-section. And like albumin 5% bags, like a 250 cc bag costs about $38. Yeah. So with all these factors just kind of in mind, there's really a lot of clear benefits of using the pre-spinal and dance tron as an adjunct, if not, you know, as the sole intervention. And it's sort of just like other things in anesthesia, like a multimodal approach to preventing and managing spinal related side effects. Well, Jenny, I think that's super fascinating. Um, I think the cost effectiveness of the choices we make in the OR are always important. So thanks for putting that piece in there for us. Yeah. And just to highlight, you know, the benefit of actually using a pre-spinal and Danstron, um, like I really couldn't put it in my project because I don't have actual statistics or data on it. But from my personal experience as an SRNA, I feel like most providers in a majority of like C their C-section cases do give a Danstron to the parturian at some point anyway throughout the case. So my thought was really just why not time the administration for the five minutes before the spinal and you get this additional benefit of it. Yeah, I think that's great. I think it's similar to looking at the data on timing of administration of acetaminophen, whether it's towards the end of the case, if you're doing IV acetaminophen or at the beginning, if you can block the receptors prior to a surgical insult, it mm -hmm. has benefits in terms of post-op um, opioid consumption, pain scores, that kind of stuff. So similar timing is everything. Sure is. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, uh, Jenny, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure to talk with you about your project and to hear about how things are going. So what's what are things looking like for you right now? So you're in clinical. When do you finish up your DMP program? Uh, so I'm set to graduate in May 2021. Um, just one more semester left. Oh, you know, congrats. Assuming Coming nothing in... else crazy happens with, <laughs> with the world. So. Yeah, yeah. Did you experience furlough from clinical? Yeah, we were out for a few months um, in the spring, like March to June. Yeah. But um, luckily, it didn't affect us numbers-wise too much. So we've pretty much been catching up on everything. Being able to catch back up. Nothing like going yeah. to grad school, getting your doctorate during the pandemic, huh? <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, good luck with everything. I wish you the best moving forward. Uh, I know when you knock off the project as part of your doctorate degree. That's such a huge accomplishment and a huge weight off of your shoulders. So congrats on getting the paper finalized. I'm so glad that you decided to share your project and your research with us on the podcast. And I wish you the best moving forward. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This was, this was a lot of fun. <laughs> that's awesome. All right. We'll talk soon. 